0: Well, I echo Elder Bob's uh, comments about Marcus. You'll get a little glimpse of uh, yesterday, uh, his, just how God has shaped and formed his convictions in his heart through the scriptures, and his uh, understanding and obedience and application the areas of systematic theology. Bible knowledge and application was just a tremendous thing for us to observe. And... Um, a resounding unity between the three of us peter bob and i just in affirming him to full time pastoral ministry um, second hour is going to be great it's going to be a tremendous time we look greatly forward to that time thought a lot this week about what to preach on on this occasion on ordination sunday various passages ran through my mind first timothy 3 on the qualifications for elders First Timothy 4, the 11 marks of a colossal minister of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 4 as well, Paul's last epistle to his son in the faith. 1 Thessalonians 2, or even John 10 came to mind. I came really close to preaching from John 10, where our Lord said, I am the good shepherd. The hired hand runs away when wolves come. When predators attack, the hired hand is the first to flee because He cares nothing for the sheep. But I love the flock. I lay myself down. And what a charge to all the under-shepherds of Christ, as we serve in His stead, to lay ourselves down for the flock as well. So many texts describing to us, committing to us, explaining to us the ministry of pastors in Christ's church. But God pressed me even though we studied this less than a year ago, God pressed me to this chapter once again, because it is so near to my heart, such an influence in my heart, in my ministry. John 21 and 1 Peter 5. Christ's call to Peter. That's found in John 21. And then in 1 Peter 5, we find Peter in turn, Fleeing with us, calling us, charging us, passing on the baton. Christ restored him and commissioned him to pastoral work. And At the end of Peter's life, he turns the men of his generation and he passes that baton on to them. And by the inspired scriptures, he's passed it on to us. So Peter, what, 27 years ago, you ordained to the ministry, 25, 27. It's a little older than me. right? And then myself, 2003, four years ago. Bob, eight months ago. It's passed down to us. And here we are today. Passing it out to our dear brother, Marcus. Let's look at this chapter. These two chapters, John 21 and 1 Peter 5. It is the last chapter of John's book. It is... Apostle John's great gift to the church. The chapter here records for us Peter's restoration from his fall. To fully understand John 21, we need to look at the context. Look at the backdrop. Look at the background of what has occurred already before John 21. That account is familiar to most of us. We know why Christ is restoring Peter. Because Peter had fallen. Peter had denied the Lord. We need to consider that event so that we would understand the significance of John 21. No need need to turn to Matthew 26. I'm going to just briefly go over the events of Matthew 26. It is late Thursday night. Our Lord had washed the feet of the disciples. It is after dinner. It is post-Passover. Judas had already left to betray Christ. And then with the cross in sight, our Lord predicted the betrayal, not just of one of His disciples, Judas, but He prophesied that every single one of the disciples will deny Him, will desert Him, will abandon Him at the most critical hour. Matthew 26:31, Christ said this very night, You will all fall away on account of Me. All fall away is the Greek, it's from the Greek word skandalizo, from where we get the word scandal. The word has the literal meaning of setting a trap, a snare, or a stumbling block. The idea is that Christ is saying, all of you will stumble, will fall away on account of me. Because of what will happen to me, all of you, you will not stand firm. You will not continue in your race, your journey. No, in fact, because of what will happen to me, you will all fall away. You will all stumble. While our Lord faced the cross with courage and valor, these disciples would run away with human fear and cowardice. Even as our Lord faced sin, death, and Satan for them and for us, they would risk nothing for Christ. And what is Peter's response, the spokesperson of the twelve? Peter replied, verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He compares himself with the other disciples. And he says, yes, Lord, you are right. The loyalty, the faithfulness, the courage, the love of these men is weak. And I can understand you questioning their love. They are the kind of men who are fickle, so half-hearted that they will fall away. Thomas, Nathaniel, Philip, James, and even John. Kind of a sensitive guy. Lord, I understand when the fire comes down, he's going to run. But not Petros, not Peter. I will never fall away from you. We see that Peter overestimated his love for Christ. And he underestimated his flesh. He underestimated his own sinfulness. Christ responded, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Generally, the idea is, there's a rooster crow at 3 a.m., signifying 3 a.m. before morning, three hours before morning. The Lord was saying, before that rooster crows, alerting the city of Jerusalem, you will deny me not once, not twice, but you will disown me three times. Peter responded, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is correcting Jesus. Peter is rebuking and correcting Jesus in a sense, he's saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, oh man, you have lost it. You're speaking things that you know nothing about. You don't know my heart. You don't know my love for you, my devotion, my commitment to Christ. I will never disown you. You are wrong and I am right. He is trusting in himself rather than the words of Christ, words of God. Well... Subsequently, it gets worse. Our Lord takes his three of them to Gethsemane to pray in his most dark hour, apart from the cross. And for three hours, he pleads with them to pray with him. For his soul is so downcast, his soul is so full of sorrow, that he is at the point of death. And Peter, each time he is falling asleep, he cannot stay awake. For him, the priority was not prayer. For him, what was urgent was rest, was sleep. Tomorrow will be just another day. The soldiers come to arrest Christ. And remember the study from Gospel of John: how the Lord did not wait to be arrested. He was not a coward running away, you know, hiding away in a spider hole on the ground. No, he stood up from prayer, saw his uh, ac- accusers saw the soldiers coming after him, and he went towards them. And remember in John 18, when he went towards them, all the soldiers fell. Here is Christ standing, the Roman soldiers on the ground. He met his enemies with valor. And what is Peter doing? He takes out a sword to protect Christ. As if a fisherman with a small dagger can protect the second person of the Trinity, the one who created all things, God who is incarnate in flesh. I mean, how absurd, what a comical picture is that? But Peter doesn't see the comedy, because for him, this is where Christ needs him. Christ needs his help. Christ needs his protection. Nothing of the sort. Our Lord calls him to put away the sword, because this is exactly why he came. He came not to reign, but to, to suffer. He came not to rule, but to die. And he's arrested, taken to the authorities, the leaders of Israel. And during that time, a little servant girl comes to Peter. A little servant girl. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? He denies it. And then, happens again. He denies it a second time. The crowd says, your accent gives you away. We know you. You are a disciple of Jesus. And he swore. He ran, he, he spoke curses on himself. He says, I do not know the man Immediately, a rooster crowed. Matthew twenty-six seventy-five says that Peter then remembered the word that Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows: "You will disown me three times." The parallel count in Luke twenty-two sixty-one says that at that time, when the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and across the courtyard, their eyes met. And in that instant, Peter remembered Christ's words. And Peter saw the the foolishness, the utter pride, the utter arrogance that had filled his heart. And he was confronted by his own sinfulness. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Peter remembered his boasts. And he saw firsthand the shame, the humiliation of his own sins. Now, you must understand these failures of Peter did not disqualify him for ministry you would think if anyone is disqualified unfit for ministry in God's kingdom it would be Peter but we find that these were these trials were tailor made for Peter by God himself that God was preparing him for the gospel ministry His failures are exactly what God used to fashion him, to shape him, mold him to be a man of God. His failures are what prepared him for pastoral ministry. It was important that Peter go through failure. You know, Christians, uh, they struggle when they go through trials of prosperity. When blessings come, when they experience success. When, Christ, when Christians go through trials, loss, disappointment, heartache, God is blessing Him. God is blessing her. If you are going through trials today, if you're undergoing temptation and you're struggling, my God, how He loves you because He is sanctifying you. He's preparing you. He is, He's attacking the core issue of your life, of your heart. He's trying to break down what is prominent, that He might be prominent in your life. What is He trying to break? What is He trying to destroy in our in our lives? It is a sin of pride. It is a sin of pride. That's why Christ took Peter through this arduous ordeal. That is why Christ now is taking you through what He's taking you through to destroy the sin of pride. The greatest obstacle to pastoral ministry is the pastor. It's the pastor himself. Every Christian, especially every church leader, must be broken of this vice in their lives if they want to be an effective servant of Christ. If they want to bring honor to Christ's name if they want to rightly serve the Lord, this vice must be broken. This is the one thing that keeps us from rightly and effectively serving God. It's the sin of pride. Proverbs 8.13, God said, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16.18, Pride goes before destruction. Why is that? Because pride at its core it's self-worship. Pride at its core is idolatry, love of self. And the reality is that one of the, the main occupational hazards of the pastoral ministry is pride. You know, you just come and join, you, like Scott, you come and just join, you just want to serve. You want to find gaps, right? You're willing to, you know, rush during football games. Now you want a QB, right? I'm sure you do. You want to be a wide receiver. You want to play safety. But you're a new guy. You want to fill the gaps. So I'll rush and chase Joe all day long. Right? Not much glory in that, but I want to fill the gaps. Well, you don't have much source for pride because you just wanted to serve Christ. Well, God blesses you and you begin to lead. You begin to serve and God uses you. And you start to lead people. And God uses you to bear fruit in His church. And people start to speak about you and tell you how blessed they are by you. And what happens? It's the occupational hazard of ministry. You begin to have haughty thoughts of yourself. You begin to boast of yourself in your heart. You begin to have delusions of grandeur, a high view of self and begin to worship self, as you serve Christ. Especially dangerous. That's why leadership in the church is a dangerous place for sinful man to occupy. John Owen said, self-centered pride, self-righteous vanity, self-interested greed, and self-pitting deceit remains in the hearts of pastors. As of all believers, and like noxious weeds, they have to be dragged out. Robert Murray McShane said, I know I am proud, yet I do not know half of that pride. Here's an eminent pastor saying, I know I'm proud. I know very well, but I don't know half of it. Jonathan Edwards groaned about the bottomless, quote, bottomless infinite depths of pride that was left in his own heart Martin Luther said I am more afraid of the Pope's self than of the Pope in Rome and all his cardinals I am not afraid of the guy with the big hat in Rome I am afraid with the guy with the big hat in my heart Charles Harden Spurgeon that demon of pride was born with us. It will not die one hour be- before us. I must try to describe pride to you. I paint it as being the worst malformation of all the monstrous things in creation. It has nothing lovely in it, nothing in proportion. Pride is the firstborn son of hell. Pride is the maddest thing that can exist. Nothing proves men so mad as pride. O man, hate pride. Flee from it. Abhor it. Let it not dwell with thee. If thou wantst to have a madman in your heart, embrace pride. For you shall never find one more mad than he. And imagine a pastor filled with pride. He has become a madman leading the church. That's why Spurgeon continued, If we magnify ourselves, we shall become contemptible. We shall neither magnify office our office nor our Lord with pride. We are the servants of Christ, not lords over his heritage. Ministers are for churches, and the churches are not for ministers. Let's take heed that you be not exalted above measure, lest you come to nothing. That is why all sane Christians, all sober minded pastors and Church leaders hate pride. We are against it. We know God is against those who are proud. And all sane believers are pursuing this one virtue their whole life. Pursuing humility. Simple as this God loves the humble. God loves the humble. Job 5.11 The lowly He sets on high. Proverbs 25.9 He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. Psalm 147.6 The Lord sustains the humble. Proverbs 22.4 Humility and fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. How about this? Isaiah 57.15 For this is what the High and Lofty One says, He who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And one of my most favorite verses, Isaiah 66.2 The Lord declares... This is the one I esteem. This is the one, He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When Peter was filled with pride, God was against him. But through his failures, God humbled him. It was trembling as he wept bitter tears. God was now coming to his aid. Humility is so important for a man of God. That is why our God led Peter through these failures in the Gospels so that he might be ready for the successes in the book of Acts. J.C. Ryle said of this account, This fall of Peter is doubtless intended to be a lesson to the whole church of Christ. It is recorded for our learning that we be kept from like sorrowful overthrow. It is a beacon mercifully set up in Scripture to prevent others making shipwreck. It powerfully shows us the danger of pride and self-confidence. If Peter had not been so sure that although all denied Christ, he never would, he would probably never have fallen. It shows us the danger of pride. If Peter had watched and prayed, when our Lord advised him to do so, he would have found grace to help him in the time of need. It shows us, not least, the painful influence of the fear of man, which is a symptom of pride. Few are aware, perhaps, how much more they fear the face of man, whom they can see, Than the eye of God whom they cannot see. These things are written for our admonition. Let us remember Peter and be wise. This is all the backdrop of John 21. This is what happened. This is why it happened. And understanding this helps us understand what is happening in John 21. John 21, Matthew 26 depends on how you look at it it's the low point of the gospels or the high point Christ is crucified Christ is buried three days he rises from the grave and then John 21 records Christ's first conversation with Peter and Peter's restoration and Christ's call to Peter if you don't have your Bibles open please open to John 21 1 The disciples are at the Sea of Galilee. It's early morning. Can't believe uh, I was actually there, Sea of Galilee, many years ago with my wife. Through our seminary to tour, study study tour for several weeks. It's a freshwater lake. It's very similar to uh, Big Bear Lake or Lake Tahoe. So if you ever been down, been to Big Bear Lake, Lake Tahoe. You go early in the morning, and you'll find there is not this roar of the waves like the Pacific Ocean. It's a freshwater lake, very quiet, very serene. The water is very still. Picture it if you can. The disciples are gathered there, and they're waiting for Christ, because Christ told them before he was crucified, "Go to Galilee and wait for me there." His Headquarters, his base station they 're waiting for Christ, and Peter is restless because you guys know what i 'm going to say. Should he even be here? is he going to receive the mother of all rebukes? and what is he doing the you know, last time he saw Christ, was across the courtyard with our lord 's face marred by bruises and blood and spit. What is to become of Him? Peter's restless, so he tells his disciples, let's go out and fish. They all, all agree. They go out. Verse 3b, they went out, got into the boat, and they caught nothing. They failed in their worldly pursuit. And another instance of a mighty providence of God. They failed. God had sort of ordered that they would labor all night, but they would and catch not a single fish so that the Lord would provide in the morning As the day was breaking verse 4 Jesus stood on the shore disciples did not know it was Jesus Jesus said to them friends, children do you have any fish? they answered him no we have none he said to them cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish that's happened before. Apostle John recognizes this event, and he recognizes the Lord. He leans towards Peter, and he whispers, It is the Lord. Peter realizes the Lord's on the shore. They're about 100 yards away. So, this is why I love Peter. Peter. They had taken off his cloak to work all night. Usually when you go for a swim, you know, you don't put your jacket on. He's not thinking. He wants to be with Christ. He cannot wait for the the boat to come to shore. He puts on his cloak, and he jumps in the water. He's not thinking. And what is he doing? He is swimming towards Christ. Because he wants to be with the Lord. I mean, how beautiful is that? Peter had denied the Lord, sinned against Him, but his heart is with Christ and he swims towards Him. But once he is ashore, he dares not approach Christ. Reminders of his sins, of his denials, prevent him from approaching Christ, conversing with Him. Verse 9, When they got out to land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with Fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, "Bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter, verse 11, went aboard, hauled them to shore, full of large fish, 153 of them. So I know it's been a long sermon already, long Sunday coming, but I gotta pause here and tell you why did John include 153? Why include that number? Why? Well, main reason is to show that he was an eyewitness. He was there. He knows small, minutiae of detail that only eyewitnesses would know. So he tells them, you know, I can prove I was there because I don't know how many fish we caught. Who would know that unless you were there? I'm not giving you a second tertiary account. This is a primary account. I saw with my own eyes. I touched with my own hands. I experienced this for myself. What I'm writing to you is true. But why even count the fish? Who cares how many you caught? It was a net full. Let's eat already. Christ wants to talk to us. Who's counting the fish here? It's Peter. The disciples are communing with Christ over breakfast. And Peter's in the boat by himself. This is my interpretation. All by himself. And he cannot enter the fellowship because of his guilt. He's in the boat by himself counting how many fish they caught. Maybe the disciples said, Peter just bring some over. Cut the quit the counting just come on over. But Peter, we can understand. We experience this in small measure and we give in the temptations in our own lives And we sin against the Lord and we stay af- away from the Bible, we stay away from church, we skip out on services, we skip out on Bible study, and we're counting our own fish. Because of our guilt, Peter comes over and says, caught a lot of fish, 153. Here, the scene is set. And our Lord does the most wonderful thing. Our Lord addresses Peter, his full name, Simon, son of John. Simon Peter, Simon son of John. And he asks him a simple question. Do you love me more than these? Love me more than these? Now what is the question here? Is he asking, do you love fish more than me? Your old job, your old way of life? Do you love these men more than you love me? Or is he asking, do you love me more than these men love me? That is the question. Peter, do you really love me more than these other men love me? Why, why is he asking that question? Because the last time they talked, that's what Peter said. Peter said, all of you will fall away on account of me. And Peter said, not me. I love you more. These men have weak love for you. They have partial love for you, but not me. I love you more. So Christ asked him, in their next conversation, Peter, is that true? Do you truly love me more than these men love me? You said, even if you were to die, you will never disown me. Did you do that, Peter? Did you go to prison for me? Did you risk your life for me? Did you give your life for me just like you promised? Our Lord used the word agape, unconditional love, love of will, purest, richest, truest love. Did you agape love me as you had promised? The reply was simply, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses another word for love. In the Greek it's not agape. It's phileo. So, you know, some commentators debate about the significance of different word usage here. I don't understand how they can not see the significance of different word usage. Right. I mean, think about it. If, if you ask your wife, do you love me? And she says, I like you. <laughs> oh, okay, great. I'm happy now. You know? No, you, do you love me? I like you or your girlfriend, or your child, you would see some significance in the different word usage. You might say, oh, in America, love and like are used interchangeably. Yes, sometimes true. But in that context, it would mean something. Especially now in John 21, in light of the backdrop of Peter's denials, Peter could not say with full clear conscience, I agape love you. How could he say he loved Christ unconditionally, sacrificially with his whole heart? God had granted him a humble heart, a contrite spirit, phileo, deep affection, brotherly love. He couldn't say agape because the memory of his denials were still so fresh in his mind. The best he could say was, Lord, Edwards describes it, this this virtue in this way, broken hearted love. Beautiful words by Edwards here. He said, all gracious affections that are a sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken hearted affections. Broken hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble broken hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. That is a true, true love that is sweet to Christ. For the rest of his life, Peter professed this kind of love towards Christ. Christ asked him again. And he said, we'll we'll cover his uh, reply, but he asked him again, Simon, son of John, verse 16, do you love me? Again, using the word agape. Peter again, I phileo you. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you? And he used the word phileo. Do you indeed phileo me? Now Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Our Lord condescended to Peter and said, Yes, Peter, a sinful man cannot produce agape love. When you were proud, you couldn't see that truth. You had such a high esteem of yourself. You thought you could love me like I love you. Possible. Now you know the best love that a sinful man can muster up is phileo love. And so you ask, do you phileo love me? Peter here appeals to Christ omniscience. Lord, you know everything. You know all things. You know that I love you. In Matthew 26, he said to Christ, you don't know anything. Old man, you don't know my heart. What are you talking about? How can you tell me what I believe in my heart? I will die for you. You have no clue. in John 21, Lord, you know everything. And you know my heart. And he appeals to Christ's omniscience: om- 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 45- You know that I have to lay love for You. You know everything. You know all my sins, all my infirmities, how little my faith is. Lord, You know how little I pray. You know how proud I am. You know the delusions of grandeur I have. You know how weak I am. You know all these things, but You also know I love You. How comforting is that? How comforting is that? to ordain men, that He called us, even though He knows everything. Even though, He knows everything about us, how weak we are, He knows the truth. If you knew the truth about us, I can't preach this morning. I can't be your pastor. right? But God, even though He knows everything about me, He still called me, and I come to Marcus. God's never surprised by Marcus. God's never shocked. He's not taken for a loop. God knows everything. And He says, He knows Marcus loves Him. That is why Christ called Marcus. Christ first called Peter. And Christ, knowing everything, charged Him and called Him to pastoral ministry Go back to 15 after his first confession of love. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Teach the word of God to my people. Verse 16, Tend my sheep. Take care of my people. Shepherd them. Verse 17 again, Feed my sheep. Teach them what nourishes their souls. Feed not their flesh, but feed their souls. Tells us, love for Christ is loving the church love for Christ and loving His body here on earth if you love Christ you must love the church and serve her now Matthew 26 is the backdrop of John 21 John 21 is the backdrop of 1 Peter chapter 5 open your Bibles turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5 Peter Peter Fell, restored, commissioned. And in 1 Peter 5, he commissions us. He exhorts. He pleads with us. 1 Peter 5 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Paul addresses himself as a fellow elder. Those two words, company together, occur only here in the New Testament. He doesn't come to us as someone of authority, but appeals to us. He comes alongside of us. And he appeals to all the elders of Christ church as a fellow elder. He says to them, He says to us, I exhort, literally, I appeal, I beg of you. The choice of the word here indicates His humble attitude towards us, towards the elders of Christ's church. He pleads to us three key issues for elders. Service, motivation, and reward. What we are to do, why we ought to do it, and what we're doing for service motivation and reward first of all peter exhorts the elders to service to serve the church by shepherding the church of christ verse 2 poimite shepherd the flock of god ares active imperative verb it's a command the ares tense conveys a sense of urgency calling us to shepherd, feed the Word of God to Christ's people. Teach and preach God's Word. This tells us, this is the chief work of the elder pastor. This is what sets him apart from deacons and the church. He's able to teach. He's able to nourish Christ's church. He is able, skilled, and not just teaching sound doctrine, but refuting those who teach heteros doctrine. Therefore, for pastors, preaching is our foremost call, duty, and responsibility before God's church. The biblical remedy for a lost world, and also for struggling believers, is the comprehensive, heart-searching, heart-pursuing preaching of the truths of the Bible. This is the labor of a true shepherd for the people of God. Donald Whitney said, regardless of how inefficient some may think, preaching is in our technological mass media society, regardless of how much more exciting or entertaining or even successful other methods may appear, the most effective way of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ it's still through the means God was pleased to choose. The foolishness of preaching the gospel. That is God's chosen method. So that all glory might go to Christ. That when a man is saved is not because of a man's program or method, but it's because of God's divine sovereign grace. James Montgomery Boy said the church has to rediscover who God is, come to know Him and fellowship with Him. The avenue for that has always been Bible exposition and teaching. There is no shortcut. One more quote. Charles Spurgeon, I did not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise her. It has been through the ministry of preaching that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless His churches. That is the first work of pastors, of elders to teach God's truths. Second is macro-management of oversight. This is one of leadership giving general oversight to the church. Give oversight. Provide leadership. Give direction. Step back and lead the church. Third is personal management. Be an example to the flock. So elders literally are set before the church. They are to be models, prototypes in every way on what a godly man, godly husband Godly Father ought to be. So it is of, of utmost importance that He is an example to the church. Someone has said, rightly, that the greatest teaching tool is modeling. And example of Christ, Christian living is powerful. Someone said, all in leadership positions in the church should realize that the requirement to live a life worthy of imitation is not optional. It is a central part of the job challenging those such responsibility might be. And this is what is so unique about the pastoral ministry. You can be, you can be uh, cheating on your taxes and be a good doctor. You can be unfaithful to your wife and be a good lawyer who you are, apart from job, you has no tie to your career. But not pastors, not elders, not teachers in the church. Peter, after explaining the service of the elders, he moves on to the motives. First of all, not under compulsion, but voluntarily men must not serve as elders because there is a need. Need is not a valid reason to be a pastor, to be a shepherd, to be an elder. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Voluntary. Willingness. A personal desire. 1 Timothy 3 If any man desires to be an elder, overseer, he desires a good thing. The word, we're talking about this whole weekend, is epithemia, is lust. He lusts, he desires to be an elder. And that is seen not by his emotions, not by his affections, it is seen in his life. It is seen in his decisions. A pattern of decisions made over years, it is clear that he desires this. Voluntarily, willingly. Verse 2, not for sordid gain, not for shameful gain. He's not doing this for fame, fortune, or power. That's the motive of false teachers. God the man flees from love of money. He runs away from idolatry. He runs away from any personal gain and motivation for ministry. He has a right motivation. And third is not lording over. He's not trying to leave the church because he's on a power trip. And you know, nobody listens to him in the world. And he wants to lead some people. So, well, might as well do it in the church. He doesn't want to use the office to abuse anyone. He seeks to serve, humble himself and serve. And the reward is found in verse 4. We find this unfading crown of glory tells us that the reward for elders is in the future, not the present. It is in the future, not the present. The reward for elders is not in the present. It's not on this side of eternity. It is not a prestigious or glamorous position as I was preparing for Marcus's ordination. I I don't know if it's the right question or not, but I kept on asking myself, why would anyone want to be a pastor? Why would anyone want to do this? I don't know if that's, I apologize if that's wrong, question to ask. But honestly, like, I don't wish this on anyone. It's so hard. It's so difficult, so arduous. For a called man, it's the most happy place the most joyous place for an uncalled man it's hell it's hell on earth it's the most happy place but it's the most arduous place because there is no reward here that's equal to the work equal to the cost for the elder pastor shepherd teacher reward is in heaven it's with Christ so those pastors who want to live it up here they got it all wrong Promise. Rewards here, they got it all wrong, they got it backwards. Reward is in heaven, and what is that reward? It's the crown of glory. The Greek word crown there is not diadem, it's not a royal crown, it's the stephanos, it's the wreath that was awarded to the victor in the Isthmian Games. You won a race, you got a wreath. Indicating the pleasure of your government, the pleasure of your people, well done, you trained hard, you ran a good race, and you won, and you glory in that crown, because that crown reflects the pleasure of the giver of the crown, and so when we receive the crown of glory by Christ, we exalt in it, because that crown tells us Christ was pleased with our service, we gave Him glory, Well, a few final thoughts to close our time. Three thoughts to close our time. First is, you know, I hope all of you are fighting that same battle that we are. What is your fight? I'm fighting against pride. Paul and Peter, Matt, I don't want to make them proud, but eminently humble men. Such humble men, I know they're fighting that fight. How do we fight against pride? We fight an all-out war against pride, but the cross of Christ. God will provide a way out. What is the way out from our sins? from this besetting sin, this madness that is, resides in our hearts, that, that will not die one hour before us? How do we fight against this sin? The way out is the cross of Christ. Joseph Hall said, Thy garden is the place where pride cannot intrude. For should it dare enter there, it would soon be drowned in blood. Isaac Watts, when I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but, I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Galatians 6.14 But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only way to have a chance to stand against pride is through the cross. May our hope, may our confidence be not in ourselves, not in our sermons or accountability groups, not in our church, not in our pastors, not in our education, not in our discipline. May our confidence as Christians be. We believe in the gospel. We believe in Christ. Jesus conquered sin and death, and my hope is in Him. Second exhortation to you is pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. Pray for your missionaries. Pray for your flock shepherds. Pray that they would grow in humility. If you love them, pray that they will be humble men. Pray that they would have humble love for Christ. Pray that they would have humble love for Cornerstone Bible Church they would have humble love for you. And they would care for you like Peter post-fall, right? Wouldn't you love to have Peter as your pastor? Of all disciples, I would choose Peter. Because if, when he rebukes me, he would rebuke me gently. Because I, would, I know Matthew 26, right? So he would tenderly, patiently, lovingly shepherd, correct, rebuke me in my weakness pray that God would make your pastors your elders missionaries flock shepherds to have such love for you humble love for Christ church and then thirdly to the pastors elders missionaries flock shepherds of our church God knows us Christ knows everything about us and in spite of that he has still called us to serve in the place we are serving in. So let us with confidence in Christ teach God's word, though undeserved we are undeserving. Let us shepherd the flock of God though we are inadequate, hoping in Christ. Without reservation, we have put our hands to the plough. Let's love Christ Church all the while eagerly longing for that day, hoping. That will be approved by God and He will give to us the Stephanos of glory. Indicating that we have served Him well. That our reward is not here. We should not look for reward now. Our reward is in heaven, in the presence of Christ. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, Thou hast brought us to the valley of vision. We live in the heights with Thee, but in the depths with our own sins. Hemmed in by the mountains of our sins, we behold yet Your glory. Lord, we pray we will learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of clearest vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the well, the brighter Thy stars shine. Amen.